0: God speaks to us through his word. When he does so, let's give him the respect he is due. If you would stand with me wherever you are as we hear God's word spoken together. Now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep and Cain a worker of the ground. And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. It desires, its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. Cain spoke to Abel his brother, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, Where is Abel your brother? He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, What have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying out to me from the ground, and now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength, and you shall be a fugitive and a wanderer upon the earth. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Lord, we do once again ask that the meditation of our hearts and the words of my mouth might be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Please be seated, and if you would, grab your Bibles. Again, I always think that we worship better when we have the word of God before us. So if you will, grab your Bibles and turn to Genesis chapter 4. Early in the scriptures, Genesis chapter 4. I had told a little lie. It was just a little lie, it was a fib, it wasn't much of a big deal, but pretty soon I found that I had to tell another lie to cover up for that lie, and then I had to tell a bigger lie to cover up for those lies, and then I had to tell a lot more lies, and as you can imagine, it wasn't very long at all before I was caught in a web of my own deceit. And every level of the lies that I kept telling, the trouble that I was in, And the response that I was in uh, got much and much worse. My guess is that almost everybody here has learned that same lesson, has learned the lesson the hard way. A small sin very often leads to big trouble. A small sin leads to big trouble. I really appreciate... Over the past couple of weeks, as we have been introducing the book of Genesis to you, we have used the picture, Doug has used the imagery, that all of the gospel themes, uh, all of the message of the gospel as a whole, uh, is present in the book of Genesis in kind of an embryonic form. The kernel is there, or the seed is there, and then as we see it grow and develop, it flowers into the message of the gospel. And you can see that the very roots of the cross... And everything about the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ is woven deeply in throughout all of the scripture and ties itself well into the book of Genesis. That's nowhere more true than in the discussion of sin. As we look at the doctrine, the Christian doctrine of sin, we can see the roots, the seed, the kernel built into Genesis and then how it grows and develops as our understanding of the work of sin and the power of sin Uh, is revealed more and more clearly throughout the scriptures. It's amazing here how we have that seed developing even between Genesis 3 and Genesis 4. In this one chapter, we have that presence of sin uh, developing in the doctrine of sin as it grows during this time. We can see this most clearly if you read Genesis chapter 3. And if you were here last week, uh, we talked about that. Or if you take a few minutes and you want to read Genesis 3, you will see very much so that it's a sad story. Into God's beautiful world, into his good creation, comes this foreign, very evil, wicked element. And bad as it is, when you look at that, though, you kind of see from the Christian doctrine of sin that here we are discussing the tragedy of brokenness of this world that we experience today today all rooted in that very experience of Adam and Eve in their disobeying of the Lord and eating of the forbidden fruit. And it's kind of hard, I think, for a lot of people to see the connection between the famines in this world and war and disaster and poverty and all of the brokenness and the wickedness that exists in this world and to trace it all back to this one experience of Adam and Eve and the disobedience of God over forbidden fruit. And yet we begin to see a greater picture develop of the extent of sin and of the power of sin even as we move from Genesis 3 to Genesis 4. Now the chapter that we just read the story I just read focuses very clearly upon Adam, uh, sorry, upon Adam and Eve's children, their two sons Cain and Abel. And most of you will be familiar with the story of the murder of Abel at his brother's hands. Here we have the first murder, uh, first killing in the Bible in Genesis chapter 4. But what we have here is more than that, and the text actually doesn't begin with Cain and Abel, and I appreciate that because, once again, it portrays the doctrine of sin that we're going to be looking at today, the picture of sin, it portrays that within a larger gospel picture, Well, what is that? If you look in verses 1 and 2 in particular, now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. One of the great perks of my job is that very early on when people have babies, I get to be there uh, present and get to hold the child very early on and very often, it's uh, sometime often after uh, the woman has given birth, so we get to have a joyous time together as a family. Very often, the family is expressing their praise and the thanks to God, the great appreciation for what the Lord has done. And to some extent, Eve's words here sound very similar to that. She is expressing thanks to God for giving her a healthy son. And you can kind of see that woven into the way in which she says this. I have given birth to a man with the help of the Lord. But I think there's more here in that. And it only takes you a second to reflect back on what Eve was experiencing coming out of Genesis 3 to realize that what she is saying is just not the natural, normal expression of joy and thanksgiving for a healthy birth of a child. Eve here is reacting to something very unique in the way in which she responds to the Lord here. Remember, it was through her actions and Adam's actions that sin, death, every brokenness, everything that is wrong with this world has entered into this world, and death itself has come upon the scene. And I think Eve would have had every opportunity, every possibility, to think that she here has ruined what God has done, this beautiful creation God has made, and Eve has, through her actions, ruined it. And yet, here she gives birth to a living being. She has given birth to a son. And so, in her words there, I have given birth to a son with the help of the Lord. And she uses that phrase, the Lord, using God's covenant name, his relational name, where Eve identifies himself with God. I think what you have here is a recognition on Eve's part of the favor of the Lord. The the curse, the condemnation, the death that has now entered into this world has been mitigated, has been put off here by the blessing of God, by the grace of our Lord. And so Eve then, as she expresses this, exclamation, this joy over Cain's birth, is not just a normal thank you, Lord, for this healthy birth. It's a recognition here of the grace of God and Eve's response in worship. Now, I mentioned this, and I think Genesis 4 starts this way because we're about to very quickly talk about the terror and the horror of sin, Cain and Abel's sin, Cain's sin here. We're about to talk about that, and yet I believe that the Bible wants us to make sure that we put that within the context of the grace and the favor, the mercy of our Lord that is expressed to Eve right off the bat. So we have Cain and Abel, the birth of Cain and Abel, and in verse 3, the end of verse 2, the beginning of verse 3, now Abel was a keeper of sheep, and Cain was a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground and Abel also brought of the first for, firstborn of his flock and their fat portions. The Lord had regard for Abel and his offering but for Cain and his offering God had no regard. I think that it's impossible to read this story without immediately asking the obvious question. Why is it that God cared for, had regard for, accepted Abel's offering And yet, Cain's offering, he has no regard for. He turns away from it. As a matter of fact, I think that if you don't ask that question, you can't really appreciate the development, the growth of sin. You can't appreciate the the story of sin that Genesis 4 is trying to tell us. You have to ask yourself, what was it about Cain's offering that God rejected and Abel's offering that was accepted? Well, there have been lots of different theories about this, as you can imagine. One of the primary ideas here is that there is something more acceptable in God's eyes for an animal sacrifice than there is for a, a wheat or a grain sacrifice. That there's something about an animal, the sacrifice of an animal, an offering of an animal, that is more appropriate for God's people to offer than the grain or something like that. Now, that's a, a, an attractive idea, particularly given the recognition of the gospel message that ultimately we are going to have the death of Jesus Christ as part of the picture. So here you might have inklings of that in that understanding. But it's really hard to defend that or to justify that in light of the rest of the scriptures. For when the Mosaic law comes in force here later on in The book of Genesis and then much clearer in the rest of the Torah, we have the the presence of grain offerings that are acceptable to the Lord. The Lord himself demands or calls for grain offerings at certain spots. And the very same word here, an offering, in Hebrew is used both for Abel's offering and for Cain's offering. So it doesn't appear that The difference is somehow built around if it's an animal or if it's grain here. That doesn't seem to be the case. Well, another option would be that Abel brought not just an animal for his sacrifice, but he brought the best parts of the animal. Now, this is somewhat um, picked up in the text itself when the text says that Abel brought the first fruits, the first parts, the firstborn of the flock, And then also that he brought the fatty portions. And what we learn from later on in the scriptures is that that is the desirable part. That is the part that is most acceptable by the Lord. So you could say that Abel here brought a good offering, whereas Cain somehow brought less than that. But again, it's kind of hard to make that. That's an argument from silence at best, because it doesn't say that Cain's offering was somehow insufficient it merely states that he brought an offering. We don't know. Perhaps he brought also the first fruits uh, of the vine or the first of the crops that he brought in. He could have also brought the best that he had. It doesn't seem like that's the case. Uh, very often, commentators just resort to saying, well, this just shows how capricious God is, that God is random, that there's no telling what God's gonna do from one end to the other, that we don't need to know why God chose one versus the other, because frankly, he just does whatever God does. Well, that's a view of God that some faiths have, some religions have, uh, but that's not at all the Christian view. That's not the biblical picture of our Lord. So what is it? Why is it that Abel's offering was acceptable and Cain's was not? Well, it took a long time, but eventually we are told exactly why in the book of Hebrews. New Testament book of Hebrews, during that wonderful chapter of the faith chapter, the chapter of, of the heroes of faith, we hear the words that by faith, Abel offered a more acceptable sacrifice, and he was accepted by the Lord. It was by faith that Abel offered his sacrifice. What's the difference, then, between Cain's sacrifice, Cain's offering, and Abel's offering? It's not what he was offering. It wasn't that he was offering it. It was very clearly here that Abel was offering by faith and Cain was not. Now, that's easy to say. The scriptures identify it that way. I think that we can hold that to be true. What's the distinction between the two uh, offerings? It was that one was done by faith and the other one was not. But what does that mean for us? How How can we understand that? Well, take a second and picture what's happening here. We've got Cain and Abel. Adam and Eve give birth to their two sons, Cain and Abel, and Cain and Abel have grown. Now, clearly they are men. Uh, the text makes that kind of clear in the way in which they describe their, their functioning, what they're doing. These guys are old now, older now. They are mature. They are able to work. They're able to tend for themselves, et cetera. And notice that both men, Cain and Abel, both know intellectually that they are to worship God. This is not that Cain somehow disbelieved or didn't think God existed. Cain knows very clearly God exists. This is not the distinction between those who come to church and those who do not come to church. Both Cain and Abel have come before the Lord. They both know that they're supposed to, and both Cain and Abel come to the Lord. They both come to worship, and when they come to worship, they gather to worship God, and both of them perform the appropriate duties of worship. Both of them offer a sacrifice. Sitting in the pew, you can't tell the difference between Cain and Abel, for both of them acknowledge that God exists. Both of them acknowledge that they are supposed to come to the Lord. Both of them come, and then they bring an offering. They bring their service. They bring their worship to the Lord. But one is accepted, and one is not. Abel comes to the Lord by faith. Cain does not. Both coming to the same worship service, both performing the same duties, one doing so by faith. Now, what does it mean to worship the Lord or to come to the Lord, to to do the, the worship that we are doing, that we are doing right now? What does it mean to do so by faith, like Abel, and not just doing it like Cain. It's a matter of the heart and all. Well, sure, all of those things. But I think the the faith that we are talking about is the biblical faith that talks about not intellectual believing, but relying on, depending upon our Lord and Savior. And that's what Abel was doing. He was coming in worship to the Lord and offering a sacrifice, giving his praise, singing songs, doing whatever it is that they did in the midst of their sacrifice of giving to the Lord, and he was doing so completely not with the expectation, able this is, not with the expectation that what he was doing was working for his benefit, but simply out of a desire to please his God. Completely with the expectation that any goodness that, uh, that happens, any benefit that happens, any blessing that occurs will happen because of God's goodness, not because of his actions in offering something to the Lord. And that's precisely what Cain was doing. Cain, knowing God exists, knowing that he is to worship him, bringing an offering, knowing what he does, and then expecting through his offering to be pleasing to God. Assuming that it is his offering, his gift, I hope that all of you hear here the pseudo-gospel that grabs a hold of every Christian and works its way into every Christian heart and undoubtedly has worked its way powerfully into our congregation as well, as much as in my own heart, that expectation that what we are doing somehow earns us God's good pleasure. Why do we come to worship? We come to worship to make God happy with us. And our offering is unacceptable to the Lord because it is not done with faith. Abel came to the Lord, worshiped and adored his Lord, and the entire time gave, went through the duties, the practices that were appropriate for worshiping God, and the whole time did so with his confidence anchored in God for God's blessing. That's what it means to worship the Lord and to give your offering in faith. That's why it is that Abel here, by faith, made a more acceptable offering than Cain. And you can see it so clearly because faith is tied intimately with humility. If you wonder, if you worship the Lord with faith, Ask those you know well if you worship with humility. Because a self-righteousness results in an anger and a frustration and a sense of entitlement. And that is exactly what we see happening with Cain, which is why we know he worshiped without faith. Besides the book of Hebrews telling us, we can tell by his response, In verse 5, so Cain was very angry, and his face fell. It's a a great Hebrew word there. It's worth your studying at some point. His face fell. It really does uh, describe that that downcast, uh, but not just saddened, but angry kind of a downcast look here uh, with Cain. And the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? Why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, listen to this now. Sin is crouching at your door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must roll over it. I love that, that imagery, that picture of sin, the personification of sin, that it is crouching at your door. And part of the reason why I love it is because it so well articulates my own personal experience each and every day with sin in my life and the sin in all of your lives that I run into. It crouches at the door. Now picture that, the imagery there. It's crouching, it's like a wild animal, but it's sneaking up on you. It's hide, that's the thing. Sin hides. Sin hides itself. My guess is that if you've been worshiping here at Hebron for any amount of time, the notion, the idea that you struggle with sin, that you are a sinner, Uh, separated from God apart from the grace and mercy of Jesus Christ that that's not news to you we realize that a great text uh, that I think everybody should memorize at some point in Jeremiah Jeremiah the prophet says that the heart is deceitful above all things we read this in worship last week together the heart is deceitful above all things now, that's a favorite passage for me because when I interact with other people and I see how stubborn so many of you are over your sin, I often sit there and think to myself, haha, uh-huh, you can see how deceitful their hearts are because they don't even recognize how sinful they are. But that's not who Jeremiah is talking to. He's not talking about everybody else. He's talking about me. He's talking about you. And what does it mean that your heart is deceitful? It means that the sin that is there is deceiving you even about its very deception. Even about the deception itself, you are being deceived. And so we sit there and think, well, yeah, I know that I'm a sinner and those kind of things, but leaking into this always is that deceitful heart telling you, whispering in your ear, but you're not that bad. It's not too bad. Don't worry too much about it. And sin is crouching at your door. And of course, the word for crouching here is connected to the word for demon. Sin is the demon at the door. And Peter picks this up in the New Testament and says that that the devil is like a lion who is roaring, prowling around, waiting to devour you. Sin is crouching at the door. It is hiding, and it is ready to jump out. There is... It's hard to articulate how much sin hides from your sight. It crouches. It is waiting to spring upon you. Secondly, it, it hides, but it also it, it is seeking to devour you. It's destructive. You can hear it in the imagery that's there. This is not a... uh, I've seen cats at different people's houses that, you know, they sneak out, they run towards you like they're going to jump on you, then they turn and run away, and it's a game, and it's all kind of playing. That's not what sin's doing here. Sin is not playing some game by crouching at at the door. It's... And the text says, it is contrary to you. Its desire wants you. It wants... This is why... Even the little sins, the little lies that we think don't make a difference, they lead so often to big, spectacular messes because when we give in just a little bit to sin, we are opening the door for that demon to grab a hold of us and devour us. This is why gossip starts out as just a little thing. And sometimes we can give in a little bit to it But ultimately, it leads to a disaster. This is why impatience, when you're driving or being impatient with your spouse or your kids or something like that, it's not really that much of a big deal, but it's a huge deal because if you open up the door, that demon is waiting to devour you. Sin hides. Sin is so dangerous and so destructive. But then finally... God says to Cain, he says, you must master it. As vicious, as wild, as uncontrollable is that sin that is crouching at the door, waiting at every moment to get at any weakness in your life, nevertheless, we are not victims. God doesn't explain here how it is that we are supposed to master it. But sin is not something that we just throw our hands up in the air and say, well, I guess we can't do anything about it. Sin is exactly that thing where God says, where God, the Lord says here, you must master it. And that is a call for each and every one of us. Now, it takes until the New Testament before we see, before we discover that the mastery of that comes through God's victory over that on the cross, But that has occurred for everyone who claims the name of Jesus Christ. Claiming the name of Jesus Christ, calling him your Lord and your Savior, savior, you are at a spot now where that command that is listed upon every individual, every person that has ever existed, that you should not let that demon in, do not let it destroy you, you must master it. Now we see that that mastery comes through Christ's death and sacrifice for us. The filling of the Spirit, the empowerment of his blessings, all of those things. But right here in Genesis 4, we are told that though that sin is always crouching, is always ready, we have no excuse but to continue to strive for holiness in God's sight. Thanks be to the Lord that that comes to us through the grace of of Jesus Christ. Now it's interesting, Genesis chapter three, Eve has to get talked into sin. Eve there is, is talking with the serpent and the serpent talks her into sin and here we find God himself can't even talk Cain out of sin. God's met with Cain and says to him, don't be angry, don't let this sin crash in upon you. But we can see that it certainly does here in verse eight and nine. Cain spoke to Abel his brother and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother. The, the words rose up there are very explicit. They're, they're identifying that this is premeditated. This is not something that Cain is doing on a whim. This is not some impulse control problem that he has. He wants to settle things with his brother, so he goes for a walk. This is Cain. By the way, Cain's so angry earlier. His face falls. Who's he angry with? He, if he's got any object to his anger. It's got to be God himself, and yet he lashes out here against his brother. He rises up and kills his brother. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is Abel your brother? And Cain says, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? There wasn't a whole lot of scripture used in my household when I grew up, but somehow my mother latched onto this passage and would always say, remember, you're your brother's keeper. (laughs) Okay, And then verse 10, and the Lord says, what have you done? It's interesting through this passage how frequently God asks questions. And notice again, if you're familiar with chapter three of Genesis, when Adam and Eve fall into sin, God approaches them with questions as well. Why does he do this? Why why is your face fallen here? Where is your brother? What have you done? God's constantly asking these questions. It's not because he lacks knowledge. It's not that somehow God is, is, is missing the right factors to put together the story here. It's very clear. This is the reason why parents, this is the, the oldest parenting trick in the world. You're, you know your kid has done something crazy, and the first thing you say is, why did you do that? What did you just do? You ask them to own up to it. You ask them for the beginnings of a confession, because that's how the relationship gets restored here. What God is doing when he comes to to Cain, even after Abel's death, is that God once again is saying, this is not the end. God is, is desirous that there be an ongoing relationship with Cain, and it begins with God challenging Cain to confess his sin so that it might be forgiven. But if you know the storyline as it goes on, of course, Cain does not. He refuses to do so. And so you have this judgment that is described in verse 12. When you work the ground, cursed is the ground because of you in verse 11 and then verse 12. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer upon the earth. Genesis chapter 3 we see Adam and Eve disobeying God, taking a bite of the forbidden fruit. Okay, clearly they shouldn't have done that, but okay. And yet here you have the devolution of sin. In 12 short verses, you have Adam and Eve being cast out of God's presence, away from Eden, and yet nevertheless being told that they are to work and till the ground, that they are still supposed to be rulers over the ground, And immediately within 12 verses, you have a murder. And because of the murder, the blood is crying out and the ground itself turns away from Cain. You've got the disruption of Cain's relationship with God. You've got the destruction of Cain's relationship with his brother. And now you have that destruction in Cain's own life. Uh, as he gives into that sin that is crouching at the door, Cain himself comes apart. And now here, ultimately, you even have Cain at odds with creation itself. Why is it that we have disease rampant in this world? Why is it that we have wars? Why is it that we have poverty and racism and injustice and inequality, why is it that we have the brokenness and mental disease and emotional fractures? Why is it that all of these terrors happen? Because we have been separated from one another. We have been broken in our own hearts. And we have been separated from the world itself. And the picture would be terrible and bleak if we didn't remember this chapter begins with an expression of worship, an expression of praise to God, an expression of God's grace and his favor. If you know the storyline, then you will be able to pick up at the end of chapter 4, after you have the devolution of humanity in sin. Then you have these verses in verse 25 and 26. And Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son, and she called his name Seth. And then verse 26 To Seth also a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. And if you're not paying attention to the biblical storyline, it just sounds like that's just genealogy. But it's not. It's God fulfilling his promises that he will raise up from Adam and Eve, he will raise up a savior. And if it's not Abel and it's not Cain, our God will never stop his plan of redeeming the world. And out of grace, he grants Seth, who has Enosh, who ultimately has Noah, who ultimately has Abraham, who ultimately has Moses and King David and ultimately King Jesus. This is a story of the devolution of our lives into sin. But overriding it and overcoming it, this is a story of the consistency of God's grace to fulfill his promise to you that he will bring a savior. Let's pray together. God in heaven, how much we are thankful for your grace and your mercy to us, that you do not leave us in our devolution into sin, but rather that you have come and you have graced us once more with your presence and the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ. That though we consistently fall into sin and though those small things cause big troubles and though a sin in our own hearts continue to deceive us, still, Lord, we thank you and we acknowledge that consistent blessing of your grace that comes to its fruition in Jesus Christ. Help us, O Lord our God, to experience that anew in everything that we do this week. Reveal that sin to us that is crouching at the door Call us now through our Lord Jesus Christ and through the power of the Holy Spirit that we might master that sin and give us your grace at every moment we pray. In your son's name we ask, amen.